Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. We're in Mark chapter 15, and last time we finished up with this gruesome vaudeville act they had basically in, in uh, up through verse 19, verse 20, where the soldiers were mocking Jesus for five verses, went on and on, humiliating him in the praetorium, in the palace. They finally get done with that, and now they're ready to get on with the actual crucifixion. And so in verse 20 of Mark 15, it says, And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, can you imagine this, what that would be like for Simon? You're just minding your own business one day. You're traveling on your way in into town, maybe for the Passover, traveling around. Suddenly, you're just involved in a crucifixion. I mean, can you imagine that? Just just witnessing a crucifixion could give a person PTSD. It was a brutal, bloody, violent ordeal, so horrific that even the word cross was a swear word. It was taboo in Roman society to even say the word. It was just such a horrible thing to see. Can you imagine just walking home one day and you don't just witness one, you're in one? I mean, you're actually involved in a crucifixion? Some soldier just points you out and says, You, over here, get up. You're carrying this guy's cross. Simon wasn't one of Jesus' followers. He probably figured Jesus was just some random criminal that probably deserved what he was getting. And now he's connected with this criminal. And I don't imagine the soldiers were very gentle with Simon. Uh, They were in this savage mode already, right? I mean, in order to carry out a crucifixion, you really would just have to pretty much set aside all normal human sensitivities and just let the worst animal instincts from the flesh come out. And a whole group of men, a whole group of men are doing that. Uh, They'll do anything to anyone. And so I'm guessing this is a pretty brutal ordeal for Simon. My big question when I was studying this passage is, why is this mentioned? I mean, Mark just tells us. There's no explanation or anything. He just says, this happened with Simon. He carried the cross. And why? I mean, why is that important? It happened, but why do I need to know it? And why is it here? There's no explanation. And it doesn't. And it's not just that Mark says, oh, somebody carried the cross. He tells us his name. Specifically, it was a guy named Simon. And that sticks out because Mark usually doesn't do that, right? He usually doesn't name people's names. Remember when Peter attacked Malchus at the arrest? Uh, Mark describes that, and he just, he didn't even mention Peter's name. You'd think that's pretty important, right? It's the apostle Peter that did it. He just says, well, someone standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest. Doesn't give us either name. He doesn't even say it was a disciple. It's just someone there. Mark is like that most of the time. But here... He not only tells us Simon's name, but we get a whole dossier on him. I mean, his name, where he's from, his kids' names, where he, why he was passing by. Uh, way more detail than Mark gives for anyone else. Even the way more important characters in the story. Why so much information? 
Well, Mark wouldn't include all that information if it weren't important. So let's go through each part of it and, and see what we can glean. He starts with telling us where he was from. He was from Cyrene, which is down in Africa. So this guy was an African, which makes him a foreigner. Now that's significant because it was a Herculean effort for the writers of the New Testament to convince the Jews that their God's favor rested not just on them, but also on the Gentiles. It was just a very difficult concept for the Jews to get. And so the gospel writers, every time some Gentile comes along and plays some positive role, they make much of that. So here Mark says, you know, it was a foreigner who came and carried Jesus' cross. Uh, it, couldn't, it couldn't have been any of Jesus' disciples because they weren't there, right? And that's, a, that's an indictment on them. They, the guards couldn't have pointed to Peter or John or someone and say, you carry the cross because they weren't even there. Anyway, why does, so that's, that's uh, maybe the significance of, of Cyrene, and there's some other possibilities. There, that comes into play, Cyrene comes into play in the book of Acts as well. But, but next here, why does Mark tell us his boys' names? Um, it sounds to me like the people Mark was writing to didn't know Simon, but they did know his sons. So it's like, like well, this guy, Simon, whom you don't know, he's the father of these guys whom you do know, Alexander and Rufus. So Mark is just saying, hey, you, you, know, you know Alexander and Rufus, right? It was their dad who carried the cross. That's what he's saying. And we know um, Mark had connections with Rome. And we know that there was a leader in the Church of Rome named Rufus. Paul mentions him in Romans 16, 13. He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, this would be Simon's wife, who, was, who has been a mother to me also. So it sounds like what this is, is, if this is the same Rufus, which seems likely to me, it sounds like this is for the purpose of historical verification. That's why this is mentioned here. Kind of like when Paul was talking about the resurrection, he says, there were 500 eyewitnesses, some of whom are still alive. Why does he say that? So that you can go talk to them and verify all this. Mark might be doing something like that here. All this stuff I'm telling you about the crucifixion, look, you, this is all true, and if you doubt me, just go talk to Rufus and Alexander. Their dad was there at the time. <laughs> he's, he, he can tell you. He's, he's, they, he, they, they were, uh, their dad was an eyewitness. The Bible is full of historical markers like that, which is significant because it tells us this is a historical book. It's talking about things that really happened. You notice Bible stories don't begin with uh, once upon a time, right? Or long time ago in a galaxy far, far away or something like that. It's, it's always uh, something like during the reign of this king you know, uh, in this place that you know, when this other famous event was taking place, here's what happened. All these historical markers for verification that can be checked by the original readers. Sometimes critics will say that the events of the cross must be legends, because how would the gospel writers even know what happened at the cross since they weren't there? Fair question. They, they deserted him at Jesus' arrest. They weren't there. None of them were at the cross. How would they know? Answer? Simon was there. Simon was there. You talk about an eyewitness? <laughs> Nobody had more of a front row seat to the crucifixion events than Simon, the guy under the cross, right? Carrying the cross. That's pretty close view for an eyewitness. And this guy's sons were still around. Another thing we can observe 
in this event is how God provided. I think this might be another reason why it's included in the Bible. It shows how God provided Jesus with everything he needed to carry out his task and follow through with drinking his cup. Remember, if Jesus doesn't make it to the cross, that's a problem, right? He has to be crucified. And not everybody made it to their cross. Some people who were sentenced to crucifixion died during the flogging. Others died on their way from their injuries, on their way up to the cross. So uh, if that happens to Jesus, we've got a big problem because crucifixion was a part of his cup that he had to drink. He has to be put on that cross, but he doesn't have the strength to get there. He can't make it. He literally doesn't have the strength. So God provides help. He provides what he needs. He did it through the soldiers. Now, we don't always think of this as the way God provides help for us, right? It's like, God, help me! And sometimes he helps you by giving you just enough help to endure something even worse, even more painful. But uh, it's his will. So, so God provides help, and he does it through the soldiers, who no doubt had evil motives. They're not trying to do God's will. They've got bad motives for commandeering Simon's services. But God always uses evil deeds of evil men to accomplish his purposes. The soldiers think they're commandeering Simon. In reality, God was commandeering them. They thought they were commandeering Simon to help them accomplish their purpose. But in reality, God was commandeering those soldiers to accomplish his purpose. God provided Jesus with the help he needed to accomplish his will. That's all Jesus cares about. He wants to do God's will, right? But he couldn't do it, and so God provided the help he needed. God made his son drink the cup of suffering, but he didn't push him beyond the brink of the limits of what Jesus, in his humanity, was capable of doing. What God calls us to, to do, he enables us to do. And this incident reminds us that sometimes... The worst things that happen to you end up being the best things that could happen, right? What happened to Simon was horrible. I mean, just from a human standpoint, natural standpoint, he's walking, he's just traveling along, minding his own business, and they do this to him. This was unjust, unfair, unsettling, painful, infuriating. Can you imagine if you were, if this happened to you, and you didn't know it's the Son of God, you think it's a criminal, and this happens to you, can you imagine? It seemed like the worst thing probably that ever happened to Simon, and yet the result of this was his son Rufus, and probably Alexander, becomes a man chosen in the Lord. And his wife ends up being like a mother to the Apostle Paul, helping his ministry, and the church ends up being established down in Africa. Cyrene ended up being a major center of the church. Horrible injustices were inflicted upon you, and they, they end up being the best things that could have happened. That's how God works. So, those are a list of some possible reasons why this is included in the account here in Mark. But, I don't think any of those are the main reason. If we're looking for like direct connections, like linguistic connections to the rest of the book of Mark, the one, to me, that stands out the clearest here is from chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus said, If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus has made that the definition of being a disciple, being a follower of Christ. Following Jesus with a cross on your back is the definition of being a Christian. 
That's the core meaning of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so what happens here with Simon, I mean, you can't, you can't just ignore that. You can't read the gospel and say, oh, this is just coincidental. What happens here with Simon is included in the account because it's such a clear parable of Christianity. What happened with Simon provides a vivid, physical picture of the spiritual reality of what it means to be a Christian. And I'm not, that's not to suggest that Simon was a follower of Christ or that he was converted or anything. I think he likely was, but, but that, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying what he did physically serves as a parable because what he did physically was a model of what we do spiritually when we follow Christ. That's the point. It's a vivid picture that Mark can put in our minds so we understand the spiritual, the abstract spiritual reality of following Christ and carrying our cross. This is important for understanding this chapter because it gives us more insight into the theme that dominates the whole crucifixion narrative, which is shame. We talked a lot last time about that. Why did Simon have to bear the shame of carrying the cross in the middle of a criminal's execution? How did that happen? Well, it happened because in verse 21, it tells us why it happened. Verse 21 is simply because he was passing by. Verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So this guy gets thrown in with all the heat, the harsh treatment of Jesus simply because he got too close. He, just, he passed by. And that's a model of Christianity. If you're too close to Jesus, if you're connected to Jesus, if the world connects you with Jesus, then you will receive the hostility they're directing at Jesus. It'll land on you too. That's the, that's the picture here. In Simon's case, it was just because he got too close to Jesus physically in proximity. He happened to be walking by. In our case, we're connected with Jesus closely by our allegiance to him, by our faith in him, by our proclamation of him. It's a different kind of connection than Simon had, but it still makes the point. You get too close to Jesus, you end up carrying Jesus' cross. If you're not prepared to carry your cross, to, to be crucified, if you're not prepared to die, you're not prepared to be a Christian. We saw last time that the main thing Jesus did, was doing on the cross, was not suffering our physical torture in our place so that we didn't have to. Uh, he was doing that, but that's not the main thing he was doing. More importantly, he was bearing the shame we deserve in our place so that we don't have to bear it. Mark goes on and on and on about the insults and the mockery and the humiliation that Jesus suffered on the cross. Uh, that's the central focus of the purpose of the cross for Jesus, who deserved no shame, to bear the shame that we deserved. He bore our shame in our place so that once we allow shame to do its job and drive us to repentance, that repentance results in forgiveness that leaves no regret. The shame is gone, right? He bore our shame so we can be freed from shame. Now, that's what we covered last time, but that's not the end of the story about shame. Jesus bore our undeserved place in our place so that we don't have to. We no longer have to bear it in this life, nor do we have to go to the place of everlasting shame and contempt uh, when we die, which is how Daniel describes the book of hell. We're free from all our deserved shame, but we're not free from all shame. 
part one of the story is Jesus bore our deserved shame. Part two is we bear his undeserved shame. We bear his undeserved shame. Those who crucified Jesus heaped shame on him that he didn't deserve. And when we identify with Jesus, the world will heap shame on us as well. Do we deserve that? Do we deserve shame for following Christ? No, it's not a shameful thing to follow Christ. It's an honorable thing. And yet the world will heap shame on us for it because of their hatred of Christ. See, Simon getting too close to Jesus and ending up with shame, the shame of carrying a cross, is a parable of, about how we participate in Christ's sufferings. As Christians, we play a role in Christ's suffering. We do. We play a role in Christ's suffering on the cross. We play a role. Paul goes so far as to say this, Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul's suffering for the church filled up what was lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings. I mean, if that weren't in the Bible, we'd probably call it heresy, right? What was lacking in Christ's suffering? Is Paul saying that Jesus didn't suffer enough? He didn't pay a high enough price and Paul has to pitch in a little bit? No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus paid the full price when he died, and he said it was finished. It was, it was finished. Paying the price for redemption is finished. What wasn't finished on the cross, though, was the personal delivery of that gift to individuals around the world. That hadn't happened yet. For that to happen, people like Paul and all Christians have to suffer in order to bring the good news of what Jesus did to the nations, right? That's, our, that's, where, that's the part of the suffering of Christ we endure. When the world mocks us and persecutes us because of our association with Christ, that's part of what it means to follow Christ. It's a summary of the gospel. Jesus bore our deserved shame and we bear his undeserved shame. That's the full story about shame. And how we bear that shame, that how we bear that aspect of Christ's suffering, is a major theme in the New Testament. It's talked about a lot. Let me just give you a quick overview of what the New Testament says about that. To begin with, the suffering of humiliation is real suffering. Okay, We need to make that point. Because mockery, is something that, if it's not happening to you, it doesn't really seem all that painful compared to, like, torture, right? We teach our kids, sticks and stones, break your bones, words can never hear. We, we, we teach them that thing, but and we tell other people, hey, look, you know, if somebody's bad-mouthing you, just ignore it, you know, let it roll off your back. I can't let people get under your skin. We say that kind of stuff to other people. Because mockery just doesn't seem like, it should be all that hard to endure, right? It's just words. It seems that way, when it happens to other people. But when it happens to you, I mean, if, if everybody around you started ridiculing you, the people close to you started making fun of you, saying the most hurtful things they could think of, not in jest, but they meant it, real malicious attitude, intentionally trying to hurt you, that would be excruciating. It would. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. <laughs> most people... If they think back to the most painful words that were ever spoken to them, they would tell you they would much rather have had a broken bone than endure that. 
Broken bone heals in a matter of weeks. The sting of painful words can last a lifetime and can scar you deeply. Sometimes preachers will downplay the significance of verbal persecution. They'll say, ah, here, here in America, we don't know the first thing about being persecuted. These people in other countries, they're being tortured and they're being thrown in prison and killed and everything else. All that happens to us is people mock us a little bit. They make fun of us, insult us. That's nothing. That's nothing. Christians who are tortured and imprisoned and killed for their faith deserve the highest honor. They do. They're heroes. No question about that. And yes, that is far more severe than the persecution we face here. But it's going too far to say that what we face doesn't even count as real persecution. In fact, I would suggest that the vast majority of persecution Christians have suffered throughout the centuries has been verbal. Insults, slander, mocking, humiliation, that's the most common form of persecution there is. And the Bible recognizes that as real persecution. It's not just some small thing that we shouldn't be concerned about. It's the main, main form persecution usually takes. It's the primary core of what Jesus suffered on the cross. Right? His, the insults were more significant than the, the, the lashes. And it's the most common way that we suffer with Jesus. And if we downplay the significance of insults, uh, we, then we downplay the significance of what Jesus did on the cross. If we say, ah, insults, they're no big deal, then what Jesus went through wasn't that big a deal because it had, so much of it had to do with insults. When Jesus teaches us about dealing with persecution, what does he say? What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Does he mainly talk about how to handle having your fingernails pulled out and being beaten and broken bones? No, listen, Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He talks all about insults, and then he says, that's how they persecuted the prophets. And people, you, you hear that and say, well, uh, Jesus, they sawed the prophets in half, right? They killed them, they tortured them. True. But mainly, they insulted them. On some rare occasions, they killed them. But most of what they endured, what the prophets endured, were insults. The same thing we endure. And so that's what Jesus focuses on when he describes persecution. Having undeserved shame heaped on you is real suffering. Okay, that's the starting point. We need to acknowledge that. It's real suffering. So how does the Bible teach us how to deal with that kind of suffering? What are we supposed to do when that happens? How do we handle it? Well, when, when, like I said, last time we deserved, we talked about how to handle deserved shame. You let it do its job, drive you to repentance. You confess, you're forgiven. Then you, you're, you have no more regret, no more shame. You're freed from it. That's how you deal with deserved shame. But what about undeserved shame? How do you handle the pain of having people humiliate you? Jesus teaches us how. By his example, and this is extremely helpful, this principle, because it applies not just to shame that we receive for being connected with Christ, persecution, but all undeserved shame, all embarrassment. Anytime anybody insults you, belittles you in any way, or for that matter, anytime you feel belittled, whether they meant to or not, 
If you're someone who worries a lot about what people think of you, you can't stand the thought of someone's disapproval or somebody gossiping about you, uh, looking down on you, maybe you're a people pleaser, or you run away from conflict because you can't stand to, to have anyone think ill of you, any of those kinds of problems you struggle with, this principle will help you. It will. The way to handle any form of undeserved shame, any kind of embarrassment, any of that, the way to handle it is to follow Jesus' example in the way he handled his. All of his shame was undeserved, right? All of it. How did he handle that without going out of his mind when he deserved nothing but supreme honor? I mean, the more honor you deserve, the more undeserved shame hurts. So we can't even imagine how much pain Jesus was in when he got all this shame. He deserved infinite honor. How did he handle it without going out of his mind? That's explained to us in Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, here it is, despising its shame. Despise. How did Jesus handle undeserved shame? He despised it. He did, that's how he handled it. Now, I can explain this because it's a little misleading in the English, because the modern English word despise has changed meaning, and it doesn't really mean what it meant when they translated uh, the NIV and modern translations. Most people think the word despise means something like hate, right? Just a synonym for hating. I, I despise that. I hate that. That's not what the word means. So when people think that way, they read this verse and they think, oh, Jesus despises shame. He just really, really disliked all the shame. He, did, he hated it. That's not what this is saying. Whenever you see the word despise in the Bible, you can pencil in the original meaning of the word, which is think little of. To think little of. That's what the word means. If you despise something, it means that, that thing doesn't matter much to you. You think little of it, it just doesn't matter to you. It's really, really small in your eyes. If I despise the Colorado Rapids soccer team, um, that doesn't mean I hate them. It doesn't mean I'm against them. It just, it just means I don't care about them, right? I don't, it doesn't matter to me if they win or lose. You, they could have a good record, bad record. They could fire their coach or lose their star player. It makes no difference to me. It, make, it has no effect on my emotions one way or the other. They're not important enough in my eyes to affect me at all. That's what despising means. And that's how Jesus dealt with undeserved shame. The humiliation that was heaped onto Jesus didn't break him like it did with most victims of crucifixions because Jesus despised it. It mattered so little to him. Their ridicule mattered so little to him. When I was in second grade, I remember I came to school once with new shoes and everybody started making fun of me because of my new shoes. And I was mortified. Ah, it's horrible. It's torture. Now today, I, can, I actually have some new shoes. I could walk into a second grade class and any second grade class in the world, and every single student there could laugh themselves silly at my shoes. It wouldn't bother me in the slightest. <laughs> Not at all. At most, I might be slightly amused. But it wouldn't have any effect on my, negative effect on my emotions at all. Why? Why did it have such a strong effect on me before and no effect now? Because when I was seven, the opinion of my peers mattered a lot to me. I didn't despise it. I, it mattered more than anything. Now... The fashion opinions of a bunch of second graders means 
nothing to me. <laughs> nothing at all. And the assessment of a bunch of pagan soldiers meant nothing to Jesus. Those soldiers' opinion of him, those passerbys, those people that were mocking him, their opinion of him meant as much to him as a bunch of second graders' fashion ideas mean to me. It just despised it. It didn't mean anything. What did mean everything to Jesus was God the Father's assessment of him. And to put it another way, the reason Jesus could handle all this ridicule and all this shame that he didn't deserve was this. He was living in the big world, not in the little world. Right? Remember the big life and little life? Little life is everything that you will lose the moment you die. Big life is the kingdom of God, everything, the, all the eternal things. So how do we deal with undeserved shame in our lives? We despise it by living in the big world, not the little, by realizing it's part of the little world. That's how we despise it. Realize how little weight it actually carries and turn your attention to the carry real weight, like the approval or disapproval of God. Sometimes unbelievers think Christianity is all about guilt and just heaping shame on everybody and making you feel as much guilt as possible. But actually, if you just thumb through the New Testament, you look up all the places that talk about the word shame, one thing you'll find is... Uh, most of the time, when you see the word shame, it's telling us not to feel it. I'll give you some examples. 2 Timothy 1.8 Do not be ashamed, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. 1 Peter 4.16 If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Mark 8.38 If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with holy angels. Don't be ashamed. You see, when the characters in this little world try to heap shame on us, we shouldn't even feel it. We shouldn't feel shame, because if you feel it, that means you're assigning weight to it. It matters to you, which means you're living in the little world instead of the big world. Instead of despising it as little insignificant thing that it is, you're assigning importance to it as if it really mattered. You've lost sight of the big world. God says, the big world, in the big world, God says, I approve of you. <laughs> I welcome you as my son, my daughter. I love you. I'm delighted in you. I look at you and it makes my day. And if that doesn't affect our emotions as much as people mocking us, something's way off, right? We, we, God says, I'm pleased with you. And we say, so what? So what, God? How can I be happy with just your approval when this little speck of dust down here in the little world doesn't approve of me? See, you're only going to feel that way if you lose sight of the big world and forget all about God's delight in you. Truth is, anytime you endure shame for the sake of Christ, whether it be just flat-out persecution because you're a Christian or just some embarrassment that you suffer because something related to you following Christ's way... Uh, Anytime that happens, not only is that not real shame, it's actually honor. It's honor. Acts 5.41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin after getting punished. In this, they, they left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, they also suffered, suffered flogging. 
And you'd think, well, maybe they should have rejoiced that they had been counted worthy of suffering torture for his name. But more significant than that was they suffered disgrace for his name. What an honor. What an honor. And this is intentionally uh, put there as uh, making, you, making you stop and, and think, whoa, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Disgrace? Honor? It's such an honor to get disgraced. Yeah, big world, little world. It's a paradox. A paradox, someone defined it as a truth standing on its head screaming for attention, <laughs> right? It's, it's designed to get our attention. You only get to be humiliated for Christ if God considers you worthy. That's what that verse is saying. You only get to be humiliated for Christ if God considers you worthy of that, which is an unspeakably high honor. The apostles were nothing special. These guys, who it's not like they had superhuman abilities. They get flogged and they go out rejoicing. You say, that's superhuman. I could never even imagine. No, that was a response simply because they were living in the big world, not the little world. Witnessing that resurrection of Christ pulled them out of that little world and put them into the big world. Set your mind on things above. This is how you handle undeserved shame. Set your mind on things above the big world. Set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. Set your whole affections on above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because you died and your life, your little life is over. And your new life, the big life, is hidden with Christ in heaven. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw near to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry. And remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry, so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.